Welcome to the Pain Solutions Podcast. Dr. Wayne Fimister is a family physician with a special interest in chronic pain, whose passion is finding solutions for this epidemic problem facing one-third of the adult population. He is a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia in Canada and has developed one of the first online medical trigger point injection courses for doctors and nurse practitioners, a technique that is easily learned and implemented into the medical office of any doctor or nurse practitioner treating chronic pain. To get free access to Pain Solutions newsletter, blogs, and to register for his online course, simply register at www.waynefimister.com. On the podcast, Dr. Wayne brings together experts from various segments to share with you how they solve people's pain problems and how you can get this treatment too. And now, here's your host, Dr. Wayne Fimister. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the podcast show. My very special guest is Dr. Sana Ara Ahmed. Welcome. Hi. Thanks, Wayne. So glad to be here. So my colleague here is practicing in Alberta. And she's a qualified clinical anesthesiologist. She's an interventional pain doc. And she's also trained in cannabinoid medicine. So she's been doing that for five years over there in Alberta. Wow, excellent. So let's go back in time a little bit, Dr. Ahmed. And we're just going to talk about what made you follow your heart to end up doing pain medicine or anesthetic medicine within the field of helping people in this career that we've got? Well, that's a exciting question because it's got so many paths to it. But in a nutshell, my passion for chronic pain emerged from my passion for wanting to be a physician who was part of the solution, not just the bandage of the problem. As anesthesiologists in the operating room, we see a lot of osteoarthritis, do a lot of hips, do a lot of knees, do a lot of shoulders. And then, of course, there's all the autoimmune diseases that result in these arthritis issues. And the question that always came up to mind was, what are we doing to actually prevent these people from coming to the operating room for replacements? What can I do to be actually be part of the solution to prevent this from happening? And it became apparent that there was a need for a specialized understanding of complex pain when it comes to the way medications are prescribed, understanding the central nervous system and its sympathetic components. And I became very fascinated then in playing a role in acute pain management within the realm of chronic pain. Oftentimes, we have patients who are seen by their family physicians and have been established as chronic pain patients, but they develop acute pain syndromes that often get missed because of the chronicity of their disease. And I've spent time developing my own expertise in ultrasound-guided soft tissue injections to be able to treat the acute on chronic pain component, such as muscle pain, joint pain, tendon, ligament, et cetera, as well as understanding that there are peripheral nerves that are really contributing to pain as well. And peripheral nerve entrapments also can be contributing to pain problems. The stats say that there's a large percentage of people who are post-surgical that have chronic pain after surgery. And as an anesthesiologist who's performed 
numerous anesthetics for surgical procedures, it became understandable that there was a role for potentially a nerve block or some sort of peripheral nerve procedure that could alleviate the pain in that area where a surgeon had proceeded with some sort of procedure. Common places like inguinal hernia repairs that result in chronic groin pain, issues with obviously any problems when it comes to any joint replacement that's still having pain after the replacement. I've had an interest in that. But I think the real interest kind of came into play also in regard to the cannabinoid medicine specialization. I was living in Toronto between the years of 2012 and 2016. And during that time, there was a surge in need of advocacy when it came to chronic pain patients requesting access to cannabinoid medicine and requesting access to medical documents for authorization. There weren't enough physicians in the GTA that were willing to do so. And I was part of a advocacy group called Chronic Pain Toronto. And every day I was asked to perform, you know, some sort of medical document authorization or requested to do a medical document. And frankly speaking, I had a lot of stigma and a lot of bias against cannabis as mm. an anesthesiologist. Mm. And I mean, I trained and worked in Vancouver, BC. I did my UBC anesthesia residency. So cannabis was not something I was unfamiliar with. However, I did have a very staunch opinion about how it was the wrong thing to be doing. Mm. And while working in this advocacy space and seeing the opioid harm that was being caused by repeated doses of opioids and increasing doses of opioids and multimodal management not really functioning for these people, I was forced to acknowledge that I was coming from a space of a bias and I had to study it and understand it. So I actually wrote a paper as part of my scope of practice change into chronic pain. It was titled The Role of Medical Cannabis in the Chronic Pain Epidemic in Canada. And it was a white paper that I submitted to the City of Toronto and the Ministry of Health in Ontario. And during that research project and self-directed learning, I became very aware that I did not know anything about cannabidiol or CBD. We've always heard about THC, but I knew nothing about CBD. And as I began to understand the endocannabinoid system and the complexity has as a retrograde signaling system for all types of homeostasis in our body, as an anesthesiologist who has a passion for physiology, I was like, wait a minute, how come I was not taught this in medical school? And as I identified that I had gaps in my own knowledge that were causing my bias, it really forced me to acknowledge that if myself as, you know, an educated professional physician doesn't know, then what does the poor Canadian who's suffering in chronic pain know? And they don't even have a voice in this matter. And I took it upon myself then to really become an advocate for those individuals who are requesting access and for me to understand the industry and be able to prescribe, I needed to know not only about the plant, but I needed to know about the bureaucratic system that was existing in Canada. So I actually delved into the legality, understood the different licensed producers. I have uh, dealt good relationships with licensed producers. I've toured many facilities across Ontario so that I could be an honest advocate because if I saw something I didn't approve of, uh, I was able to speak up. I have had the privilege to be able to build a practice in Alberta and not take any money for my pursuit in prescribing medical cannabis. Whereas unlike some of the medical cannabis clinics that exist, 
they do get educational funding in the form of some sort of kickback. And I hate using that word, but unfortunately mm. it, it mm. has been some of the instances and it's of no fault of their own. The business mm. model just didn't exist in Canada before. Cannabis mm. was something new and physicians were scared. And mm. so business people who had an interest in helping chronic pain patients would employ physicians and they would then require educators and to be able to have an educator, you need to be able to pay for them. And the money would come then from the grams that are being prescribed. And the physicians were not involved at all in this. However, the businesses were. By being witness to the situation and understanding it, I chose very early on that that was not my interest and I wanted to maintain my distance and mm. promote myself as an advocate because the moment you take money from someone, you can't be a true advocate for the person on the other end. So... Mm. In that case, when I moved here to Alberta in 2016, I moved here in circumstances where I realized that there wasn't anyone in a specialized space in cannabinoid medicine, nor was there someone with the ultrasound-guided interventional background as well. Mm. And set up a practice in a very small area outside of Calgary called Airdrie and had a two-room walk-in clinic rental space that I had at a, at a friend's walk-in clinic. And... To my surprise, and people say I shouldn't have been shocked, but in the course of about a year and a half, it accumulated over 400 patients and was doing procedures in an eight by eight kind of cubic foot room, which was uncomfortable, but I was determined to take care of my patients because I knew that the opioid harm reduction needed to happen and other options needed to happen and they needed to be able to engage in mindfulness and meditation, but in an acute situation, mindfulness is not easy to teach someone in pain. It's hard enough for us average people to figure out how to be mindful all the time and engage in our breath work and do all the things that we need to, to keep ourselves in a functional state of productivity. So I definitely started off from a very modest space in Airdrie and through the, I guess you could say, building a really great team have had the honor and the happiness of finally building my own integrative chronic pain clinic. I rebranded as Genuvis Health in September of 2019 and moved into Calgary and built and developed my own clinic that's multidisciplinary. I've got a kinesiologist, I've got clinical counselors, I've got nurses, and all of us work together for the complex pain patient. And I've been able to really... Uh, delve into my understanding of interventional ultrasound guided injections and really be able to hone in on using my skill set at its best. And cannabinoid medicine is in the background of the, all of this. Mm. To be mindful and to be able to reduce mm. anxiety for people, I use CBD predominantly. And for people who are having a lot of neuropathic pain and are struggling with managing their pain at night will use balanced THC and CBD. And mm. I mean, I had to start off in the days when I had to convince these fibromyalgia patients who are like, no, 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 we don't use cannabis. I'm like, no, you have to use dried flour and I'm going to teach you how to use dried flour. And now I've got the capsules and oils and we've got sprays. So things have really, really advanced in Canada ever since legalization happened. But I think we're still quite foolish. I don't think we actually really know what's going on when it comes to cannabis. We're still learning. <laughs> we're at the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> okay, well, listen, thank you for your um, description and your history. And, you know, it's been beautiful to hear how you've made decisions 
on your practice based on helping people first and not being dragged in by business decisions or other decisions that are outside our training, like legalities or big pharma or whatever other powers that be are in place, because we're all working within this system with different pools on us. So I have a question, and it's very up to date because it's about the COVID-19 that's affecting all of us in different ways across the world. So my question is, when we use CBD or THC or both, has that got an immune suppressant effect on the, the coronavirus situation? It's a really topical question, Wayne. My colleagues across the UK and the United States and Canada, we're all asked the same question. And the fact of the matter relies, we don't even know what COVID-19 is. So when we start talking about immunosuppression and trying to understand how this virus impacts us, it's really hard to recognize that the endocannabinoid system has a play. On a common sense level, the endocannabinoid system is our regulatory system for cell balance. And it has an impact on our sleep, it has an impact on our appetite, it has an impact on our memory, our stress, as well as our immune function. But the endocannabinoid system is specifically developed and built by us, I mean, physiologically all vertebrates have an ECS, but it's an on-demand system. So when we are stressed, that's when our endocannabinoid system goes into effect. So it's not like how when you take a medication or you're immunosuppressed and you take prednisone or you take some sort of disease-modifying medication that you're then augmenting your system that's defective. The ECS is unique in the sense that we already have endogenous production of cannabinoids. We make anandamide and we make something called 2-AG. And these two cannabinoids are coursing through our blood and they're binding to all of our cells in a retrograde fashion to make sure that our cells are functioning well. If our body gets infected by the influenza virus or by a bacteria, we have other immune system plays that go first. So those are going to be our primary methods of dealing with an infection. Our endocannabinoid system is going to be there to make sure that all the other systems are still in balance. For instance, if our sleep is not functioning because we're up all night coughing or our digestive system isn't functioning because we're having problems when it comes to actually digesting the food and the molecules that we need for optimal nutrition, if our stress levels are really high because we're still working when we're sick. So that's where the ECS really has a play, in my humble opinion, versus at the molecular level, really trying to figure out if it has an anti-inflammatory benefit when it comes to a particular virus and bacteria. I know that my colleagues out in McMaster have discovered that there is antibacterial function of THC molecules and that there's antiviral components and they're considering this for other diseases. But I think we're in such an early phase of understanding cannabinoid physiology that it's really difficult for us to really wrap our mind around at the molecular level how this system functions when it comes to fighting infections. From a common sense point of view, as a chronic pain patient, they are immunosuppressed, period. If you're on opioid medications, your body is immunosuppressed. If you are getting regular corticosteroid injections, you are in a state of immunosuppression. Mm, If you are in a constant state of adrenergic stress, you are immunosuppressed. 
So where having cannabinoids to be able to augment and improve those stressors in your body could prevent you from getting worse or Mm. getting very sick if you get an infection is the play where I think the ECS has. Mm. But I wouldn't be able to comment that there's a direct relationship that we can really discuss at this point. Okay, thank you for your honesty. Let's talk about CBD oil processing. You know, when we take the plant and then we make it into the different formulations which you're practicing in your clinic, is there an optimal way to do this? You know, are we seeing optimal products out there available in the the local downtown store or, you know, what's going on with that? I think that's a million dollar question, my friend, (laughs) because the biggest challenge that we have right now is every producer of cannabinoid products in Canada has established themselves to be superior when it comes to extraction processes. And the highest yield of extraction comes from a process called supercritical CO2 extraction. And so it's high pressure and it's high carbon dioxide. And essentially, when you take the dried flower matter and you place it into this machine under high pressure and critical super called supercritical CO2 for a reason, there is a distillate that is formed. And this distillate in its view is very similar to what a hash resin would look like if you were to use heat and pressure. So the difference is, is that when you're manually using heat and pressure on a dried flower product, you aren't able to quantify the yield very well. But if you do have a sophisticated supercritical CO2 extraction machine, you'll be able to determine your yield. And these machines cost thousands and hundreds and thousands of dollars. And so it is only the high functioning licensed producers that can afford to be able to have high critical CO2 extractors and be able to do mass production of dried flower conversion into this distillate. And it's this distillate that then has to be diluted into a carrier oil to be able to be ingested by humans. And carrier oils need to be something that are lipophilic because THC is lipophilic. So they tend to be something that's like a medium chain triglyceride, like palm oil or coconut oil or olive oil, some sort of carrier as such. And the licensed producers in the country have a variance in which oil they use as their carrier. And then the dosing then is determined to be placed into a milligram per milliliter And the Cannabis Act, unfortunately, has put a limit on the milligrams per milliliter of THC to 30. And I say unfortunately, not because I disagree with that, but it's because it has then created this misconception that there needs to be a cap on CBD. But that's not true because CBD at 30 milligrams per mil, in my humble opinion, isn't a strong enough dose to deal with the anxiolytic or anti-inflammatory benefits that we're looking for. And so having this arbitrary number that we're extrapolating from THC and superimposing onto CBD is, I think, where the challenge is. And then it's created variance in the way the products are being sold. So the individuals who are claiming that they have a higher CBD concentration are using plant matter that has very low THC concentration to start with namely the cannabis sativa that's been grown for hemp or economical purposes such as harvesting it for its stock or for its seed or for its hemp oil outside of 
something that is going to cause euphoria or something that's going to cause a high per se. Whereas the cannabis sativa plant that is being grown by licensed producers has a significant amount of THC in it, hence why it needs to be tightly regulated and tightly grown in these LP facilities. And even though they're doing this extraction and the gross yield is supposed to be higher in CBD, it's that minuscule amount of THC that's with it that is creating it to be more medicinal than just CBD alone. The difference is, is when you have a little bit of THC, CBD works better. When you have no THC, you need a lot of CBD for it to work. And with the hemp farming bill that took place in the United States, that's exactly what the U.S. counterparts have been doing. They have high-yield hemp-based CBD that's up towards of 3,000 milligrams in a bottle because they can, because the THC content is so low in the plant. Whereas in Canada, due to the THC content in the plant, the maximum yield that we get here is between 900 to 1,000 milligrams in a bottle. And I personally think they could do much more, but it becomes a political issue of, well, if everybody wants CBD and how do we keep our, our money in the, in the business and how do we make sure people keep buying this? If one bottle isn't enough, they need two bottles a month. And my biggest challenge in this whole entire problem is the cost on the patient. I am so frustrated knowing that my patients need CBD and it's expensive. And when I say to them, well, I would like you to start this dose so we can do some harm reduction and possibly reduce your opioid consumption, the first thing out of their mouth is, well, it's not covered. And when they say it's not covered, you know it's a red flag right there that they're not going to be compliant with any cannabinoid treatment you're putting forward for them. And it takes a lot of education and it takes a lot of back work that I've been doing with my advocacy for my patients to be able to reduce the prices and be able to get compassionate pricing and find how insurance companies can cover this so that my patients can get access. But if I had an ideal world, CBD wouldn't be that expensive. And if I had an ideal world, it wouldn't be limited to a thousand milligrams in a bottle. It would be 2,500 milligrams. And at least then I could properly dose my patients. So that was a very long-winded answer to your question. But awesome. I hope I was able to touch pace on a lot of little topics around it. No, it was good. It was excellent. I'm just going to bring it a little bit closer to home now in this COVID-19 arena that we're living in. And we were chatting before. Just Can you just share... You know, what's your personal journey as a physician and how has that impacted you and what are you doing about that for your patients? Well, Wayne, COVID-19 has had a unprecedented impact, I think, on every single human being in this world. And when I was watching the news on BBC back in January, when COVID-19 was first being reported coming out of Wuhan, I was contemplating and wondering, is this going to come to Canada? Is this pandemic going to impact me? Uh, what's going to happen? And at that point in my naivety, I, I really thought that it was going to be under control and it wasn't going to be a problem. March 13th, I had a suspected COVID-19 patient unexpectedly in my practice. I did not know this. I performed an ultrasound guided shoulder procedure. I did not have any PPE. And as the patient was leaving my practice, got a call from Alberta Public Health saying that I had an unexpected event in my practice where I had a patient who was a suspected COVID-19 and I had just completed an ultrasound procedure on her shoulder 
And so I was very close in proximity to her. And as she was leaving my practice, she got a call from 811 Public Health Alberta saying that she was a suspected COVID-19 and had to go into isolation. And it created a complete uproar in my practice because if she was suspected, that means now I was at risk, my nurses were at risk, and I had to cancel the rest of the day because I couldn't expose any of my other patients and then went into self-isolation for 14 days to ensure that nobody was infected. And I did this prior to when WHO even called us a pandemic. It was during my isolation that the cases in Alberta were 3 to 10 to 15 to 38 to 120 to 250. And I have been terrified because after that single-hand experience, all I can think about is people are not taking this seriously. Self-isolation is not a joke. Not washing your hands is not a joke. Walking around in public places because you're bored and don't want to be at home by yourself, it, it's not a joke. You're really putting people who are needing to work and take care of people who are in pain or at health issues um, at risk because I've had to shut down my practice. One person who's unsuspected COVID-19 coming into my practice, even though, thank God, this patient was negative and I got swabbed and I'm negative. But that lesson basically taught me that I can't even do Botox or migraines anymore because I'm in close proximity to their faces and I don't have PPE. I'm not a hospital. I'm an independent business. I'm an independent private practice physician. I have masks. I have seven N95s and I have seven staff. That's all I've got. We have strict protocols about changing out of our scrubs and making sure that we're, you know, what we wear at work, we go home and wash and we come back in. But I'm having to overnight convert my entire practice into a virtual practice. And every day I get more than five phone calls a day of patients' mental health crises with severe anxiety, wondering when I can take care of them because they're due for an injection, they're due for a procedure. And they don't know what to do. This is exactly what I, I think chronic pain patients are experiencing too. People who are generally isolated and then being forced to go into self-isolation causes more anxiety. And I have been a beacon of light for some of my patients. Actually, I'm blessed to have been a beacon of light for my patients who, who say to me that coming to Genuvis gives them hope. It helps them manage their pain better. It, it gives them an opportunity to recognize that they're not alone, that there's other people who care about them. There's other pain patients. And that community feeling um, in my pain practice has had to come to a full halt because of COVID-19. And I want to open up my practice and do procedures again. But at the same time, with the knowledge that I have as a specialist and understanding the impact of what COVID-19 is from a public health issue, the numbers that we're facing here in Alberta are unprecedented, in my opinion. I am very disappointed in Albertans. They are not taking social isolation seriously. The amount of people I see out and driving and the hundreds of cars that are going by my house every day, I just wonder that people are not necessarily directly impacted because we're not densely populated perhaps. But the person who's impacted right now are the thousand patients in my pain practice who I can't see. And I'm grateful that I figured out a virtual consulting service and I will be as of this upcoming Monday, which is exactly a month since I went to isolation, be able to start seeing patients. But 
it's taken a toll on me. I'm stressed. Um, I feel responsible. I feel like as a business owner, there's a financial strain on me now to be able to make everything work. I'm dependent on my team who are fantastic on helping me build databases so that we can figure out how to electronically be secure as well as compliant in being able to provide healthcare in a telehealth formation. Alberta is unique because BC and Ontario, where I've trained and worked, have been ahead of the game. But Alberta never had telehealth before. And so overnight, the CPSA and the government had to go lax on every single telehealth rule that existed. And it really is, you know, the wild, wild west right now. I'm making it up as I go. (laughs) And I'm grateful that I have the foresight to do so. But I guess the message to everyone out there is take self-isolation seriously. And please protect yourself and protect your family. Wash your hands. Wear a face mask when you leave the house if you're forced to. And take it seriously in the context that PPE is needed for healthcare providers because there are hundreds of people who are still requiring medical attention. The appendix that accidentally, you know, gets ruptured because appendicitis got missed because the family doctor couldn't see them is like a really big worry for the medical community. I mean, there's people who have unfortunately break bones and they need surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, there's people who, you know, are having babies still and, you know, life goes on. The heart failure, the kidney failure, the respiratory failure, these are all issues that people have and need the medical professionals in their clinics to be able to assess them. And if we're so afraid of seeing them because we can cross contaminate and take a vulnerable population and make them more sick, then that's something to say about society in general. So right now, I think we're, we haven't flattened the curve. We really, we really need to. And I never dreamt in my life I'd be talking about COVID on a podcast and and that, you know, this conversation was even going to be on my forefront. But thank you for the opportunity for me to share my opinion. And and thank you for creating a space for chronic pain patients to recognize that they're not alone and that there are physicians who are passionate about caring for them and that we're working tirelessly in creating solutions in an unprecedented space because there are no rules. We've never had to deal with the pandemic before. And it's a scary time and we all have to play our part. Well, thank you, Sanara. It's been wonderful to allow you to speak and exactly to share your opinion. Very eloquent and very heartfelt. And I I take my hat off to you for that initial thing you said about looking for solutions because that's the title of this podcast show, you know, we're in the 21st century. We need solutions. I am a big believer there are solutions, some of which are not apparent yet, I think, and a a big enough scale that that we know about. But I think as time goes on, and I'm sure COVID-19 is going to change the direction of how people can get this information um, on a physician or practitioner patient or public level through things like virtual consultations. And I myself have entered into this world as well and uh, moving forward. So again, thanks so much. It's really good to see you. And hopefully we'll talk again on the show. Thank you. It was such a pleasure.